but we'll, we'll start. Um, we were talking about guided wave optics before we, we took a break and did a bit of a review last time. Um, but we're going to continue talking about guided wave optics today. And so we introduced some, some, of, the, uh, some of the mathematics and, and structure that we're going to use today, last time, when we talked about one-dimensional waveguides. So today we're going to generalize that to two dimensions. Not much changes. Um, but we'll introduce a few of the things that do get changed and then talk about some of the devices you can build based on these waveguides. So just a couple pictures before we start of what a two-dimensional waveguide might look like. Um, typically, you have a substrate. I think last time, last Monday, I showed how you can embed an index profile in that substrate using um, standard lithography techniques. And typically, lithium niobate or silicon are the most common substrates for these uh, integrated optics, these, these waveguides. So some, I think this shows uh, titanium being doped into lithium niobate. Uh, silica can be doped into the, into the silicon. Silica means glass. Um, or rather than doping into the material, you can just have some corrugation on the material. And then in this example, you can think of it as the uh, silicon here is a waveguide, and the cladding is the air surrounding it. That's essentially what happens. So it's just different geometries of how you can create uh, the profiles, either on top of or embedded in the substrate. And we've seen that you can pull two-dimensional waveguides in the form of fibers, and those have a cylindrical geometry. Most of what, if not all of what we'll consider today, is, is more of a rectangular geometry, as shown by something like this. In practice, what happens when you generate one of these uh, lithographically, at least if you do it by diffusing a material into your substrate, you generally get some sort of uh, some sort of gradient profile in the material. Okay, so that said, we're going to consider I think, just entirely this rectangular geometry today. Okay, so I'm going to skip over the slide as fast as I can, which because I've already shown it. Just to remind you, this is the general process of photolithography, and that's what you can use to uh, to produce a waveguide in a substrate. And we'll start with our waveguide in the substrate. So here is a core surrounded by a cladding. And, and we'll take that as our, our example that we'll use today. Just It makes the mathematics a little simpler to have the same material on both sides. But as I mentioned, that's probably not the way that it would actually be manufactured. And we've looked at how the mode structure in one dimension has to behave. And we said there are only discrete a discrete number of modes that satisfy this self-consistency equation. And our self-consistency equation, I'll remind you, looked something like this when we plotted it. There was a, a left-hand side and a right-hand side as a transcendental equation. And so if we plot the left and right-hand side, we find that there's, uh, numerically, we can find the intersects. And those are points that satisfy the self-consistency equation. And in this case, um, I'm plotting the left and right-hand side versus sine theta. So theta is the angle that the light is traveling um, measured with respect to the axis of the waveguide. And so if you find solutions to this, um, there's, so there's three solutions shown here. Each one of those, you can read off on the, the graph a different value of sine theta. And that represents three different angles for the rays that uh, can produce modes in our waveguide. And we're going to tend to talk about the uh, propagation constant, beta, of those rays. So we know the uh, wave vector. Of a, of a wave 
we call K. And inside a material, it's K0 times N. And the propagation constant along the waveguide we call beta. That was just a reminder from last time. So we can relate sine theta to beta by beta is equal to K0N sine theta. So there's K, which is K0N. That's the direction of a ray. Theta describes that direction. And then beta is the component of that along the uh, axis of the waveguide. Uh, yes, it should be. And why is that sign? Um, I have to go back and look at that. OK, well, let's ask this question. What is k sine theta? Is that drawn it? What do we call it? Do you remember? Alpha. Right, that was alpha, the transverse component of the k vectors. Um, so beta is, you're right, beta is cosine theta. I was thinking sine theta because that's what I was plotting this against. You'd have to actually solve for theta right, and then plug it into that. OK, so um, we have a discrete number of modes that can propagate. And we could do this, this uh, self-consistency equation in x, or, and y if we have a uh, rectilinear geometry. And we'd find that there's a certain number of modes that uh, satisfy the self-consistency equation in the x direction. So think of rays. Uh, bouncing back and forth in the x direction and needing to interfere constructively with their reflections of themselves, and rays bouncing back and forth in the y direction, also having to satisfy that. And we'd find that there are discrete values of, um, we can either say it as the angle of the rays in the x and y directions, or the propagation constants um, along x and along y. And so, those points I can plot in x and y space, or kx, ky space. So I have the, um, I'm plotting the x component of the k vector and the y component of the k vector. So that's really, that's alpha. And so instead of just having in the one-dimensional case, one, two, three points at three different angles, we now have some number of points for, uh, for the rays reflecting in one direction and a certain number of points in the other direction. And those points fill out a grid. And a requirement is that the transverse component of the k vector, alpha, has to be less than the magnitude of the k vector. Right, that's for a uh, real propagating solution. So here's the um, magnitude of, there's the magnitude of the k vector. The cosine theta c, theta c is the critical angle. And I know that the transverse component of the k vector can never exceed the transverse component of the, the wave at the critical angle. If it does, the light will leak through. So that is to say, if my rays are at too steep an angle to this interface, they won't be guided. 
Okay, so there's a limit on that angle that I can have, and that angle is the critical angle. And that's why the transverse components of the k vector have to be less than some maximum transverse component in which, at which the wave would propagate through the interface. Okay, so I have discrete values for kx and ky. They're plotted here in this kx, ky space. And I require that those values satisfy this equation or this inequality. So this term here represents an upper bound on essentially x squared plus y squared. So if I have kx plotted here, ky plotted there, this term right here represents a radius of a circle within which all the allowed solutions have to lie. And we know there are solutions every pi over d in sine theta. That's how often this, uh, this expression repeats on the right-hand side. That came from tangent of theta. And so if there are solutions every pi over d, I can draw little squares that are pi over d long. I can do that in x and in y and break up this area into a grid. And I can estimate the number of allowed modes, knowing that there's one point in each grid space, as the number of grid spaces, or the area of this quarter circle, measured in units given by the, the grid pitch. OK, so the grid pitch is pi over d. Those are my units. The radius of my circle is n1 squared k0 squared cosine squared theta. And I want to find the area of this quarter circle in terms of that, these units. So my area is pi r squared over 4, because it's a quarter circle. That's the radius squared. Oh, is this? Yes. Thank you. So I will take this radius squared, and I will normalize it to these units of pi over d. Just square that as well, since I have the radius squared. And then I'll be careful to include the critical angle subscript. And then I'll solve in terms of uh, a parameter that's more commonly expressed for a, a waveguide than the, the critical angle. And that's called the numerical aperture. The numerical aperture, I think we mentioned this last time, is a measurement of how much light the waveguide can accept. And it has a value that's given by the index of refraction out here in the medium that this waveguide is embedded in times the sine of the acceptance angle. Right, so if it's in air and n0 is 1, the acceptance angle is 90 degrees, then the numerical aperture is 1. That can accept light from any, from any direction into the fiber and have it guided. Smaller numerical aperture means there's a smaller cone of rays that can be accepted into the fiber, and, or waveguide in this case, and be guided. OK, so a little bit of uh, manipulation of this expression. 
we look at the path of a marginal ray, one that is just at the acceptance angle, it's going to be refracted at the first interface and at this uh, core cladding boundary, the angle of the refracted light would be 90 degrees. That's the condition for total internal reflection. So we have this uh, relationship between the acceptance angle on the left and the equivalent of that on the right in, in the core material that's governed by Snell's law. So I'm calling the angle of the marginal ray in the material theta A prime. And that's related to the critical angle by the fact that these are complementary angles. So this is, a, this is a rectilinear geometry. They're opposite angles in a right triangle. Critical, so just tracing backwards here. Right, right. That defines the acceptance angle. So we can say, through Snell's law, at the face of the waveguide, that n naught sine theta a equals n1 sine theta a prime. And you'll recognize now this term on the left. It's a numerical aperture. So I can now relate sine theta A prime, that's this side over this side, to cosine of theta C, this side over this side. So I've got an N1 cosine theta C over here. So I will write this as. Yeah, as Na. That's pi over 4 times k naught squared, pi squared, b squared, and bring that into the numerator, and numerical aperture squared. Yeah, so expressing k naught as 2 pi over lambda, I will get, I will recover this expression. Let's see your notes. And that's an estimate for the number of modes supported in a waveguide of numerical aperture Na. <coughs> it's not an exact expression because we just estimated based on the number of cells under here, but we don't actually know whether uh, specific individual modes fall inside or outside this, this boundary constraint. But you can Again, use it to estimate, for example, the requirements on the diameter to have a single mode fiber. Setting that n equal to 1, solving for d, gives you a constraint that the diameter has to be about the size of a wavelength or smaller in order for this to be a single mode waveguide. Yeah. Which is M, yeah. OK, so we end up with a slightly different formula for the number of modes than we had for the 1D case, which we would expect, because there's, uh, there's now the possibility of having mode numbers that, that have different transverse components in the orthogonal direction. But the basic, uh, basic idea is the same. It's, it's going to depend on the diameter and the wavelength and 
same general rule of thumb is that if the diameter is much larger than the wavelength, you'd expect a large number of modes. Um, if it's smaller, you can have single mode operation. So just looking at a picture of what some different modes look like, depending on your geometry, um, if you have rectangular coordinates, so if your uh, waveguide is rectilinear, your modes would look like this. This is a plot of the uh, intensity of the mode shapes. So last time we plotted the electric field distribution. If you look at the intensity, so plotted in x and y, if you have a single, it sort of looks like a Gaussian. We'll see it's not exactly a Gaussian, but uh, a single spot, that we call the zero, zero mode. Right? If you have two lobes, where the lobes are along x, we call that the one, zero mode. If the lobes are, here we go, vertical, we call it the zero, one mode. And if you have sort of the lobes in the quadrature, we call that the one, one mode. So you can see that the mode number along x is the number of zero crossings of the intensity along x. And the mode number along y, n, is the number of zero crossings when you look at the uh, cross-section along y of that intensity plot. Um, so that's generally the way we describe modes in a rectilinear geometry. Uh, we also have a number of examples like fibers that are cylindrical. And for those, it's often useful to talk about um, the cylindrical mode, or to use a natural basis that's, uh, that has cylindrical symmetry. And we define the linear polarization modes as having a, an L and an M index. And M is the radial index, L is the azimuthal index. So here is the 0, 1 mode. That's the lowest order mode for uh, cylindrical coordinates. The 1, 1 mode, you can see, has looks sort of a. Uh, OK, so the, zero, the lowest order mode looks very similar, whether you have a rectangular geometry or a, a cylindrical geometry. You have a sort of a spot in the center. Um, and in both cases, if we were to plot The intensity as a function of, say, x, it has some value. It never reaches 0. It asymptotically approaches 0 in other, either direction. And so there's zero, 0 crossings. Or if you were to plot the electric field versus x, you'd have the same general form. Now when we have one zero crossing, the electric field looks like that. That's why, that's why I'm calling it a crossing. Uh, the intensity is proportional to the electric field squared, so it's just going to touch zero at that point. So that's what's happening in one dimension. Now if your dimensions are x and y, uh, you can probably imagine the sort of convolution of this in x and in y. And Imagine generating these plots. If you're using cylindrical coordinates and you have radial and azimuthal, we can describe this as starting from the center going out. That's the radial coordinate. You have no zero crossings, regardless of which direction you go. And in the azimuthal direction, starting at a point on the, somewhere in the offset from zero and going around in a circle, you have no zero crossings. And if we contrast that to the 1-1 one, one mode, this is a mode that has zero 
So m minus 1 radial zero crossings. No radial zero crossings. As I go radially outwards, the radial function decays smoothly. There's no rings. There's no white rings here. But if we start at a point in the perimeter and we go follow it around, we have a you'll see two zero crossings as you go all the way around. The electric field is going positive, zero, negative, zero. So it completes one full period in one revolution. So this represents two full periods in one revolution. So the L index is two, L equals two. And to contrast that with something that has one radial zero crossing, a radial zero crossing would look like this. And then you can combine these and get something like this. Right? So this has uh, one, two, uh, sorry, one radial and one, two zero crossings in the azimuthal direction. Well, it's two azimuthal crossings, but well, we call that mode number one because it's a full period. Okay. Is there any logs that m equals m minus one? Um, yes, there is, and I didn't explain it, but when you go through the uh, modal decomposition, you end up using Bessel functions, and just that the m corresponds to the uh, index number of the Bessel function. So we didn't drive that math, and it's not my intention to do that. Okay, so what are some of the devices that you make with these integrated optics look like? So you can very easily imagine just a linear waveguide where you have nothing changing as you propagate along, and this is useful for moving light from one point to another in a, on a substrate. The next thing you can imagine doing is bending that, so you steer the light, and as long as that bend is, is uh, slow, so the, the change in... Uh, transverse position is small compared to the, the longitudinal, you'll have uh, this behaving like a one-dimensional, like a, uh, a straight two-dimensional waveguide locally at any point. You can imagine splitting the mode into two different branches. So that's a, a splitter. And if you can split the beam into two branches, then you can recombine it, and you have now, what is that? Well, you can read it, but you split the light and recombine it. It's an interferometer. So that's a very useful thing. Right? An interferometer can be a frequency filter. It can be a, uh, a strain, strain meter. Um, and what's nice is because this can be very small and integrated on a substrate, a lot of the usual problems you have with using interferometers are alleviated. So the usual problems are you set up some mirrors on a table, and what you end up measuring is um, acoustic noise, um, thermal variations of the table causing it to stretch and expand, um, index refraction changes of the air that the light is going through, and none of that's an issue in here because the distances are so small and the substrate is so stable that you don't get relative motion of the different arm paths. You can take two waveguides and bring them very close together, and we'll show that when you do, the field in one has these exponential tails that overlap with the other waveguide and can excite a mode in the other waveguide. And you can couple light from one to the other through that evanescent coupling. We call that a directional coupler. And that's really not that different than this branch. You're splitting, essentially splitting the power into multiple waveguides. And that's done commonly in, in a little subsystem that looks like this called a microring resonator, where one waveguide is uh, bringing light 
along a linear path. And there's a, not visible here, but there's a small spacing between that and this ring waveguide. And the light can couple over into the ring, and it excites a mode that's cir circulating around the ring. That's like a Fabry-Perot interferometer, light circulating back and forth. And there's an input coupler where the light can couple in, and on the other side, the light can couple out. And so all the behaviors of Fabry-Perot interferometers, frequency filters, um, allow you to, to use this device to selectively pass a very narrow or selectively block a very narrow range of frequencies. And this is used um, for telecommunications as uh, add drop filters for different channels of uh, wavelength division multiplexed optical fiber communication. Well, the, the length of the cavity is usually half the total round trip. Oh, okay. So it would be half that perimeter. Uh, and we'll talk about how these integrated devices turn into products. That'll be sort of the, the last thing we do in the class. So um, that's just a, a preview of what's to come. Uh, for now, what I want to talk about is how we couple light into a waveguide. Because usually you start, so usually, um, if you're working in a lab with, with waveguides, you probably have a laser that you need to get into the waveguide. So the most straightforward way to do that is to focus the, the propagating modes in the waveguide. Okay, so I have a picture here that shows what I mean. Um, when you take a beam and you focus it down, what happens at that focal point? What does the beam look like? Is it truly infinitesimally small? No. So it has some finite size waste. And if it's a Gaussian laser beam, um, which is the shape of most laser beams that, that you would work with, um, that waste, it's a Gaussian waste. So it's this bell-shaped waste. And I've drawn that electric field distribution as if it's slightly missing the core of the waveguide. And remember, these waveguides may be on the order of a micron in diameter. So it's not unlikely to think that you'll be off by some reasonable fraction of that waveguide diameter. So if we consider the input field as looking like this, and the propagating modes of the waveguide might have a lowest order mode that's nice and Gaussian, or it looks nice and Gaussian, and is centered on the waveguide. And then, say, the 1, 0 mode has 1, 0 crossing. Um, and there's higher order modes that I could consider as well, but I don't need for this, this example. This offset zero, 0, mode can be thought of as an on-axis zero, 0, mode plus some amount of this higher order mode, such that when I add them up, um, sort of the positive field here, and I'll call this a negative field pointing to the right over here, cancel and reduce the field value right here, whereas over here on the lower half of my waveguide, where the 0, 0 and the 1, 0 field are adding in phase, they add up to produce a larger amplitude for the field on the lower half of the waveguide. And so the sum of these two modes looks like the 0, 0 mode shifted down a little bit. If you add a 180 degree phase shift to this, switches signs, and some of these two would represent this shifted up. Um, if you let the amplitude of this field that you're adding go to zero, then 
the sum of these two modes gives you this mode. Right? So the amplitude and phase of the relative amplitude and phase of these modes govern how they add up to produce some arbitrary input field. Okay, so we call those modes, we, we call the shape of those modes u. So u is a function that describes just the shape of the mode. And so for the 0, 0 mode, I'll call it u0, 0, 0. For the 0, 1 mode, u0, 1. And the amplitude, I'm calling a. So I have a certain amplitude for the 0, 0 mode, a0, 0, 0. Certain amplitude for the 0, 1 mode, a0, 1. Right, and that's a, in general, can be a complex number. So it can have this amplitude and phase into it. And so what happens is, if you send this beam into the waveguide, it excites this superposition of modes. Um, now imagine that this waveguide is a, only supports one mode, single mode waveguide. Any of these higher order modes are going to attenuate immediately when they go in. And the only mode that propagates without loss is this 0, 0 mode, and that's what comes out. So if you have a single mode waveguide, your efficiency at coupling in is essentially the overlap, or the amount of your input light that uh, excites this 0, 0 mode. Any other modes get lost in the transmission through the waveguide. So mathematically, we can say that the waveguide field is the superposition of a bunch of modes, each with a certain amplitude, complex amplitude. And each mode has a longitudinal propagation constant. So as it propagates along z, the phase of the modes vary. <coughs> okay, so we can write, probably skipping a step on this. Yeah. So R is a vector here. It's a general vector that just represents the posi transverse position. And it doesn't need the Z dependence. So this is evaluated at the uh, interface to the waveguide. So this is my waveguide, where I have N2, N1, and N0 here. I'll call this Z equals 0. And I can say the electric field in the waveguide at Z equals 0. some value for x and y. And that's not leaving me enough space. So let me rewrite that. So that is the superposition of these mode amplitudes. These mode amplitudes are only functions of x and y. They're constant as the field propagates through the waveguide, so there's no z dependence. That's what it means for it to be a mode. But they do have, they do oscillate their phase, uh, their phase changes as they go through the waveguide. So there's this oscillation. Yeah, so I should, so I can say that goes to zero. And z equals 0. OK, so what I want to do is I want to ask um, how much of my input field is in the different mode amplitudes. So I want to say, what is my input field at z equals 0? 
in terms of these same mode amplitudes. Yes. So if you know how much field, how much of this field before it gets to the waveguide is in the, the lowest order mode of the waveguide, that amount will just couple straight in because it has the exact same mode shape. You might get some reflection losses off of this interface if there's a Fresnel reflection. Um, but that's just the standard reflection losses off of a dielectric interface. Other than that, it will just propagate in without uh, losing anything because of its, its shape. Right, so uh, what we need to do here is multiply each side by some mode with mode number m prime and n prime, and then integrate over all of x and y. Ah, uh, good question. Because they're modes is <laughs> the short answer. I, I didn't prove that. I, I did not prove that they're orthogonal. Um, so U would be a basis that Let U M N U M prime N prime integrated over all of X and Y equal delta mm prime delta n n prime times we'll just leave it like that that assumes you've now normalized your modes so that they're they're uh, a single mode has unit amplitude when integrated by with itself okay so you can see what's going to happen uh, when we integrate this side we only get a, a a non-zero component when m equals m prime, n equals n prime, and then this just evaluates to one. And so we recover um, amn. Well, yeah, well, okay, I'll, I'll call them primes for now. That, that makes sense. Um, and on the left side, I'm left with general expression. tells me how to evaluate the amplitude of mode m prime n prime. And at this point, you can replace m prime n prime with mn if you want. Okay, so we call that an overlap integral. It's the input field, how much of it overlaps with the, uh, the mode that you're trying to calculate. So let's do an example. Say we have a 15-50 nanometer laser. Anyone know why I'm picking 15-50 nanometers for this? Of? Nope. Nope. It doesn't come from having a convenient wavelength available. In fact, lasers were developed specifically to have operation at this wavelength. Fused silica fibers have low loss at 1550 nanometers. And 
if you dope erbium into those fibers, they have gain. They can have gain if you pump them. So the erbium-doped fiber amplifier, or EDFA, you may have heard of, was one big revolution in telecommunications. It allowed long-distance fiber communication where when the, fi when the signal attenuates to an unusable level, or before it attenuates to an unusable level, you have a section of the fiber doped and turned into a laser or an amplifier that amplifies the signal without having to couple it out and couple it back in. That made it affordable to have transcontinental uh, communication via fiber optics. So the erbium-doped fiber amplifiers work at 1550 nanometers. Therefore, lasers were developed. Uh, so indium gallium arsenide in gas, indium gallium arsenide phosphorus lasers were developed for use at that wavelength. And now, uh, that's, since that's the wavelength that all, basically all telecommunications is done at, you can get really cheap components at that wavelength because they're manufactured in, in mass. Okay, so anyhow, uh, let's say we've got this laser and it's focused down to a spot size of one micron, um, a waist radius of one micron. At the center of the face of a waveguide, here are the dimensions of the waveguide, 500 nanometers by 500 nanometers. We're given the core index and the cladding index, and we want to know how much of the light makes it into the lowest order mode. And I will define the lowest order mode being the TE00 mode. We could also have a TM00 mode. And what we'll see is, because of the symmetry of this waveguide, those actually are the same. So it doesn't really matter in this example. So we'll do this twice. The first time we'll do it sort of symbolically with the equations that we've got so far, and then we'll do it with, math uh, with Mathematica to see how you would actually calculate stuff. <coughs> so the first thing you need to know, if you want to figure out basically how much of your input field overlaps with your mode amplitude, you need to figure out what your mode amplitude looks like. And this was sort of problem one in the homework, is you've got um, some general form for what the the waveguide mode should look like in the three different regions, sort of above the waveguide in the core and below the waveguide core. And you can write that in X, you can write similar expressions in Y, and then put them together and you get the mode amplitude in X and Y. Wait, what is UMM? This is, this should be, well, this is a more general expression of what the field amplitude should look like of a mode as a function of alpha, gamma, well, I guess alpha and gamma. Alpha and gamma themselves are functions of beta, and there's only discrete values for beta. So if you have the zeroth solution for beta, that gives you alpha zero, gamma zero, u zero. If you have the, so I could have, I guess I could have put some subscript there and then mirrored those on the alphas, the gammas, and the betas. But we introduced this expression before we started talking about modes. So I literally copied this from an earlier slide in the notes. Okay, so we have an exponential decay above and below the core, and we have a wave that in the transverse direction is a propagating wave in the core, meaning there's a transverse component. It's rattling around between the two interfaces in the core. So because, the, because the, the directions are orthogonal, the mode amplitudes are orthogonal as well. 
OK, so um, our self-consistency equation looks like this. Um, that expression can't be solved. Uh, it can only be solved numerically. So we plot the left side, we plot the right side, where alpha and gamma are functions of beta. So we plot it versus beta. And we find solutions where the left and right side overlap. From that, we can read off our value of beta. So once we know beta, we know alpha, we know gamma, and then we can say what the field looks like. Um, well, we're only interested in the 0, 0 mode. So we only need to calculate what the 0, 0 mode looks like. We don't have to worry about anything else, because that's the only mode that's going to come into this expression for the amplitude of the 0, 0 mode is the field distribution of the 0, 0 mode. But I mean, from the equation, it looks like there is only one. Yeah, it looks like it. It's unclear whether there's a solution over here. Right, there's clearly a solution here, because you can see the red has to cross the green. You don't know whether the green is sort of crossing or, or whether it's going up. Um, so. That's the convention. OK, so uh, once we have that, that tells us what the mode amplitude profile will look like for one particular value of beta. Um, and if we do the, the smallest value of beta, that's the zeroth mode. And that's only telling us in one dimension. I should probably call that u naught of x, not u naught naught. But we have the same, the same mode in y, because x and y are degenerate here. We have an electric field, which we were essentially given. We were told our input light was Gaussian. So a Gaussian function has this form, some amplitude times an e to the minus uh, variable squared. In our case, our variable is a transverse distance measured relative to the, the beam waist. Okay, so when the distance away from the center, square root of x squared plus y squared equals w naught, then I have the field amplitude decaying to e to the minus 1. And that's, that's where we define the Gaussian waste to be. I've got this input field, and it's decayed to e to the minus 1 some distance away. And assuming we normalize our mode amplitude that we found in the previous, found a general expression for the mode amplitude, if we ensure that that's normalized by multiplying it by a constant value such that that normalization condition is met, then we can plug in a value there. We can plug in our electric field there. We can do this integral. And it's really evaluating how much overlap there is between these blue and green, blue and red functions. And what I'll find is that the amount of overlap is 0.43. So perfect overlap would be 1. No overlap. For instance, if I have an odd function and an even function, it will give me 0. And this is sort of 43% field overlap. That's just an x. Right, when I consider in y, I get another 0.43. So the amplitude of that 0, 0 mode would look like 0.43 squared. 
times the total field amplitude. That's just the field amplitude. Then I have to square that to get a power amplitude, or to, to get a power. So it ends up being 0.43 to the fourth, which is about 4% of the power actually makes it into that waveguide in the zero lowest order modes. Uh, not so good, considering that we focused the beam down to about the size of the waveguide. We sort of did what you would naively do. Um, it's not that naive. I mean, it's, it's a starting point, and then you can sort of iterate, and, and it's, that's what the homework is asking you to do. Okay, so that's n doing nothing more than looking at the slides and, and applying those equations. Um, how do we actually evaluate it? And the answer is often MATLAB, uh, Mathematica or MATLAB, or whatever your favorite. So, see, I think I can make this a little bit bigger. That would be useful. I can actually go into Mathematica. So I've got the parameters of the problem. I'll evaluate those. I know there's an expression for alpha in terms an alpha in terms of beta. I haven't figured out what beta will be yet, but once I know beta, I know the indices. I know k naught. So once I know beta, I'll have alpha, and then likewise I'll have gamma. Beta is found from the self-consistency equation, which looks like tan alpha d equals 2 gamma over alpha minus gamma squared over alpha. So this is the self-consistency equation. And you can see what I did. I plotted the left-hand side. This is the right-hand side for the all, all possible values of beta. Smallest value is the propagation constant in the substrate. Its largest value is the propagation constant in the core. So I can only consider regions in that solution. And then I, I can eyeball where those, those left and right-hand sides intersect, or I can ask Mathematica to find that numerically, and that's the find root. Um, so it'll find root of self-consistency equation. I have to give it a starting point, because it's going to numerically iterate around some starting point. And it comes back with Well, I plotted it first, and then I just looked at that number, and I then went back and added that in. So it's, I had to iterate this a couple times to produce a somewhat uh, compact uh, set of notes here. Okay, so what it, its solution I, I call beta naught. That's going to be the zeroth order, the zeroth uh, intersect because it's the first one that I found. And once I know beta naught, then I can evaluate alpha with that value of beta, gamma with that value of beta, and I call them alpha naught and gamma naught. We actually talked about this. Okay, so there's the numerical values. Right? They're all on the order of 10 to the 6, because I have a wavelength that's in microns. These are all scale sort of like 2 pi over the wavelength. Now, I want to plot the fields. So my incident field is Gaussian. And it looks like this. Uh, for the moment, ignore the d over 2. That comes from this next example. I'm using one Mathematica file to do multiple examples, and I didn't realize I had changed this. So I guess I can edit this. I'm not used to working in live expression. So which makes me wonder if I evaluated the previous expression. Okay. 
OK, so here's my incident field. And then I have three different parts to my uh, solution in the waveguide. There's the part in the substrate above the waveguide, in the core, and below the waveguide core. So I'm calling it, I guess that was plot of the electric field. This is plot of the mode distribution u. That's the first plot. So I'm giving it that term. But, um, it had an exponential decay in x. And I'm only plotting from minus d to plus d, it would appear. So I'm going from minus d to 0. Let me clarify my geometry. Here's my waveguide. It's got a width of d. x equals 0. Is that right in the middle? Uh, Here's my geometry. It goes from 0 to d. That's the core. And so I'm going to plot my mode distribution from minus d to plus 2d. Okay, so I'm plotting um, this exponential decay from minus d to 0. That's this bit. My expectation is that's going to look like this. Then I plot the, um, the expression for the field in the substrate. And for my given value of alpha, it can have, um, can oscillate. What I'm going to find is it's, because it's the lowest order mode, Alpha not x encompasses essentially half a period of the cosine wave. So it's going to increase and then decrease. And if alpha not were higher, it would encompass more oscillations of that wave. And then the third region is some constant for matching the boundary conditions and an exponential decay. So it has to basically saying it has to start at that point and then exponentially decay. And then I put all those plots together since I'm plotting it in segments. Okay, so while it's evaluating that, I'll go on. Um, and then I want to evaluate the overlap of the electric field and the mode distribution. Right, so my I wanted to check my normalization to see if I had to normalize. So I integrated my mode squared. This is the mode in the below, below the core. This is the part of the mode in the core. And this is the part of the mode above the core. So in each region, I squared the mode amplitude and integrated to give me a total integral from minus infinity to plus infinity. 
that is my normalization that should equal 1. And so this u naught is the constant I'll divide by, uh, or at least I guess the square root of that, in order to get my modes to be normalized. And then a naught is that quantity I calculated that was 0.43. It's the amount of overlap in one dimension of my input field and my mode. So I have my input field times my mode, and I integrate that. And I have to do it piecewise, because I have a piecewise expression for my mode amplitude. So I do it in the bottom cladding, in the core, in the top cladding. And then, I don't know if we're going to be able to see the results here, but I can switch back to the presentation that has this embedded in it. Um, here's my fields that I plotted before, and here's the result of my calculation, um, which I've already quoted on the previous slide. It's the overlap is evaluates to 0.43. I have to multiply that to the take that to the fourth power to get the power in the zero zero mode. So four percent. Well, I use Mathematica to evaluate that number. Right. This math is easy to write symbolically, <laughs> but in to get beyond that um, and do those integrals, I use Mathematica. You could use MATLAB or Maple or whatever you use. So the uh, 0 0.04 and 0 0.035, that's the two things? Yeah. Is that rounding? Yeah, it's rounding. While you're reading the Mathematica code, on a printout that is two, two pages per sheet, that's impressive. Okay, um, so you can you can use once you have this code to calculate the overlap, you can do all sorts of things and very rapidly uh, recalculate the coupling coefficients. Like you can displace your input field. Say, so what happens if I'm off from my uh, target? So I say, what happens if you increase or displace the input field by one, so that you're hitting the edge of the waveguide. So you're displacing it by d over 2. And that's where, if you remember when I was looking through the Mathematica code, I had a x minus d over 2. I'd, I'd offset that. But you go through the exact same calculation. You just now got a displaced electric field. And I get a different value. Um, in this case, I get uh, 20, I don't know if that's 27% of what I got before. I don't think it is. I think that's I think that 27% was, was the 43%. I don't know. I, that doesn't make sense. I have to <coughs> rework that slide. So why is that Because before we had 43%, now we have 27%. Well, the bottom line is we had 4% power. Right. So I don't know what this 27% is looking at this now. Well, is that power coupling? Is that the field coupling? One dimension, two dimension? Yeah. Well, yeah, I'm, I'm guessing it has to be. But I will have to clarify that, I guess is what I'm saying. But the idea is, is you can use the same code. Um, and in fact, we can just sort of iterate and find out how far do you have to displace your input field to get only 50% efficiency. And it turns out for this example, it's about 2D. So twice the, uh, so you can be off by you know, twice the, the diameter of your core and still get half the power into the waveguide that you would have had if you were optimally aligned. 
just because the tail of your Gaussian Wait, is exciting the, the mode. when we set on, we got 12%, in. Yeah, but this is 50% of 4%. 50% of the essentially 4%. So that's what it comes to. After all the calcula calculus and differential equations, it comes to 50% of 4% is 2%. It's an observation. So if we shoot it on target and we make sure everything's aligned, up, we have 4% power n, and if we're floppy, then wouldn't we get a 2% n? Well, for this case, but it turns out that um, shining it on target with the parameters given is not actually the optimal coupling. It's the optimal alignment. Uh, maybe I should call that the optimal, uh, the coupling efficiency for the optimal alignment. But there's nothing to say that uh, a beam of this size is the optimum size. Um, as we make the beam bigger and bigger, um, the effect of moving it slightly off center becomes less significant. As we make it smaller and smaller, we expect more of the mode essentially to get into the core. Um, and you know, you can certainly imagine making it half the width, so that the, uh, or maybe a quarter of the width, so that its diameter matches the diameter of the, the waveguide. That would probably be a better initial approximation. And you can iterate, right? So you can, once you have the code, you can vary the waist size, iterate, and look for a maximum. Geometry will tell you it's always best, just based on symmetry. To hit the thing on the center. Yes. So I guess that makes sense because if it's only one mic one micron thick, but it's five hundred nanometers, half, half a micron. This is half a micron, right? So. Our, what, our two micron diameter beam, this is the diameter of the beam, significantly larger than the waveguide core. So a couple things to realize. Uh, I've, I've said like this lowest order mode, this looks, looks Gaussian, it's not Gaussian. Um, remember this was like a cosine function in this part, it wasn't truly Gaussian. So even if, there's no way to make the modes perfectly overlap because they're, they're lowest order modes in different basis sets. Um, okay, so what can you do with this once you get light into the waveguide? Um, well, lots of different things. So I sort of pointed to that at the beginning. We'll look at sort of the math that goes into two different, uh, two different specific devices you can build. Um, but in general, having light confined to a narrow waveguide buys you two things. If you're going to do electro-optics, you can have your electrodes, like let's say you have a transverse modulator, the electrodes can be very close together. And if you remember the uh, the amount of retardation you can get for a given voltage scales is like L over uh, see, L over D, where D is the thickness here. So having a small thickness 
to your waveguide means you can have the electrodes very close together. And so you can get very large electric fields and then very um, large electro-optic effects or other, other effects that come from those electrodes being so close together. And the other thing is, is because the light's not spreading out due to diffraction, it's being guided, you can make this interaction length arbitrarily long without issues of clipping the beam. Um, and so that produces a gain as well. Um, and we'll see there's some practical limitations to that later. Um, but for now, it allows you to make a longer interaction region than in a free space optic. Okay, so let's look at two optic, two designs. One is a directional coupler. I mentioned this is uh, where you have two waveguides that initially are far enough apart that you can consider them independent and not interacting. And they're brought close enough together that the field amplitude of one has some overlap with the modal profile of the other. And there's no difference between the field amplitude, say, of this top waveguide leaking over and overlapping this lower waveguide's mode. There's no difference between that and having a laser beam shining down here that's off-center but has some Gaussian tail exciting the, uh, the mode in that lower waveguide. So just like our previous example where we shifted the wave, the light from our Gaussian beam off of the waveguide, we still can couple power in. If you send light to this top waveguide, it will couple power in to that lower waveguide. And this actually is a picture of the uh, scattered light that comes out of this directional coupler where light is put in this path. And this is a 3 dB directional coupler. So 50% of the light gets, or power gets transferred over to this other waveguide. You can see the intensity of the image in the two waveguides is roughly the same. And you can also sort of see how the power builds up as it propagates along this waveguide and decreases as it propagates along that one. Okay, so we can understand this using um, coupled mode analysis. And I'm not going to be able to do that in 10 minutes. So I will point you to the fact that I have the equations in the slides. I think I will basically skip over them. You remember a coupled mode analysis is where you define an electric field as having some modal amplitude that you now allow to change slowly as it propagates along. Normally, you say a mode doesn't change as you propagate, but now we'll allow it to propagate to change slowly. Um, so this isn't a true eigenmode of the system. Um, it's an eigenmode of the unperturbed system. And in the case of coupled mode analysis, that would be like an eigenmode of this waveguide here when it's independent. When we bring them close together, the mode, which was a mode in this independent waveguide, now is going to slowly dissipate energy as it transfers it to the other waveguide. Um, so the index of refraction is spatially varying. And so the index of refraction that light in waveguide A sees gets modified by the presence of waveguide B and vice versa. I said I wasn't going to go through this, so let me skip ahead a little bit. We do our standard expansion of the wave equation. And because we have mode amplitudes that are changing in position, we have to take the time to take the z derivative twice. So what was mf? N, yes, n substrate. Which is the region between the two waveguides? Between the two waveguides. Uh, So what's M? Pure N. Pure N? Like integral 
this n? Well, the index of refraction changes. It it's a, varies based on position, transverse position. This is the substrate value. And then in waveguide A, so ns plus delta na is the index of the core of waveguide A. ns plus delta nb is the index of the core in waveguide B. And this is essentially not a, con not a function of x and y. It's constant. This delta n only exists where waveguide A exists. This delta nb only exists where waveguide B exists. That's what the functional representation means. It's, it's basically would be a step function. How would it be continuously variable? Depends on your waveguide. If it, we've con we're considering this discrete geometry where this would be a true step function. If it were continuously varying, it could be a s whatever, whatever variation that represents. Okay, so when we do this coupled mode analysis, what we end up doing is solving for these, um, these derivatives here, the rate of change of the amplitude of a mode, and they're coupled so that the rate of change of the amplitude depends on the amplitude in the other mode. So we've done this before, this general, general uh, coupled mode analysis. And all the terms that relate this change to that amplitude I've grouped into this coupling constant, kappa. That kappa comes from the mode overlap of the two modes. And if there is no second waveguide, those are modes and they're completely orthogonal. The presence of that second waveguide converts some of the field in that mode into a mode of the other waveguide is basically what that's saying. And so I can write the change in mode amplitude of waveguide A. It's proportional to the amount of amplitude in waveguide B. And it has this uh, phase mismatch term, or this phase term right here. So beta alpha and beta b, uh, beta a and beta b are the uh, propagation constants in waveguide a and b. And so what this is telling me is that if you have some amplitude, let's say in waveguide b, that's going to change the amplitude in waveguide a. But as you propagate along, if, if the amplitude, or if the field in waveguide B and the field in waveguide A drift out of phase, so as you propagate along a distance Z such that this phase term, this phase difference between the two modes becomes pi, then the amplitude of this coupling switches, and you go from transferring energy to the other waveguide to pulling it back. So in order to get efficient transfer, you either need to choose your length such that, um, such that uh, this sign never changes over that length, or you need to ensure that these mode amplitude, or these propagation constants are matched so that for any arbitrary length, you always get one-way conversion from one mode to another, or from one waveguide to another. So if we 
So this length here has been chosen such that um, half the power gets coupled away. If you went twice that distance, what you'd expect is this power would decay to zero. All the power would be transferred to the second mode. And then if you went further, you'd see you'd basically be, it'd be like a time reverse, where at that point, all the powers in this waveguide is going to couple into here and it's just going to convert back. And so over four times this distance, you'd get all the power coming right back to the, to the, um, to the waveguide it started in. Okay, and when you solve those equations, you get an expression for the power in waveguide B, assuming it all started in waveguide A. And what we find is if, if delta beta is not equal to zero, then you don't get 100% transfer efficiency. So you need the phases to be matched in order to allow this conversion to take place um, over the necessary lengths to get full transfer efficiency. So that's called phase matching. So this is the first time I think we've seen phase matching, but we'll talk about it a lot in chapter 21, which is nonlinear optics. Um, okay, so I'm going to skip over. This basically shows the power being converted from one mode to another. And this is 100% conversion, and this represents if delta beta is not zero, you get a maximum conversion, but it's not 100%. You get power going out of mode A and into mode B, but it never fully transfers and goes back. Um, so what can you do with this? You can make amplitude modulators. If you, can, you can vary delta beta. Remember, delta beta is the propagation constant along the waveguide. That depends on the index of refraction. So if you change the index of refraction via the electro-optic effect, you can vary that and you can shift power out or back into either of the waveguides. So it's essentially an amplitude modulator. You can move power around between two or more waveguides. Um, so you can call that a switch. An a modulator or a switch just depends on whether you're sort of modulating it analog or digitally. You can make a frequency filter because that coupling efficiency, I don't know how far back I have to go to see that, is wavelength dependent. Kappa and beta depend on wavelength. So one particular wavelength where you get 50-50 a beam splitter, essentially, or a 3 dB coupler, at other wavelengths will be 100% coupler or 0% coupler. And so you can, uh, you can use the wavelength dependence of this equation to basically generate a frequency filter. Um, Wait, what, 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 did you say so the three would blow up? Does that mean one frequency does not get into the next waveguide? Yeah, so if you build that uh, device such that uh, say 100% of the power comes back into the original waveguide. So you make this interaction like four times longer than what it is. Then at the nominal wavelength, all the power comes back. But you can probably imagine then at twice the wavelength, 
you only get, you'd expect all the power to go into the other waveguide. Twice the wavelength, this, this optical path becomes half as much. Um, so, so we could even have as a, uh, like, even, uh, like a prism, like pick three, like, could we pick three to choose out? Yes, you can. And this by itself is not the most effective way to do that. The most effective way to do that, or the most common way to do that, is this micro ring resonator, which I showed. And what, what I've drawn is just this part of it. Light of a particular frequency will couple into this resonator. And if it interferes constructively with itself after a full round trip, the power will build up in the resonator. That only, because there's low loss and you have many, many reflections, or many, many cycles, the wave has to be very, very close to actually an integer multiple of two pi wavelengths, uh, multiple, integer multiple of wavelengths to get constructive interference. So a very narrow frequency range will build up resonantly in here. And only the power that builds up in here can transfer out to the other waveguide that started out empty. So you can convert a narrow, you can take a narrow frequency band and remove it from this waveguide and put it into that waveguide and leave the, all the other frequencies in the original waveguide. So it would look like, yeah, uh, lambda 1, lambda 2, lambda 3 in. Then you get lambda 1, lambda 3 out, and lambda 2. That's, that's the block diagram of that. Well, yes. But you can steer this back. So that's uh, a few of the examples of what you can do with this. So we've run over time. So we will uh, move on. I think we're going to do nonlinear optics next. have to check that. But um, Wednesday, the homework's due. And we'll start nonlinear optics. Um, and we'll see a lot of the same sort of mathematical framework reappearing.